This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Connecticut State Senator Will Haskell. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your election. Hey, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So your election was pretty interesting. You unseated a pretty popular Republican incumbent and flipped a seat that's been held by the GOP since the 1970s. How do you pull that off? Well, like you said, I was running against somebody who had been in office, frankly, for longer than I've been alive. So it was an uphill battle from the beginning. But I was optimistic that we could win this race for a variety of reasons. To start, this uh, was a district that voted 22 points in favor of Hillary Clinton. It was the bluest Senate seat in the state and one of the bluest in the whole country that was still held by a Republican. But more importantly, uh, I grew up in this district. I knew the values of my family, my friends, my neighbors. And I saw that they weren't being accurately or adequately represented in the state Senate. I saw that we had a representative who was voting against paid family leave, who said that we went too far in regulating guns when I think that we haven't gone far enough. And most of the voters that I spoke to actually agreed. They thought it was time to send a new voice to Hartford. And you just mentioned two pretty big issues. Going into this legislative session, what are Democrats' top priorities? Well, I can't speak for Democrats as a whole, but I can tell you what my top priorities are. Number one is making sure that no person has to choose between advancing in his or her career and starting a family or caring for an ill parent. That means passing paid family leave and guaranteeing that the U.S. will catch up with the rest of the world in in providing for genuine workplace equality and not penalizing anybody professionally for deciding to have a child. Uh, That will be a top priority of mine, as well as passing really common sense gun violence prevention. For me, that means banning ghost guns so that nobody can order a gun through the mail and receive an unserialized, unregistered gun in their mailbox, uh, making it harder for law enforcement to do their job. It also means restricting concealed carry. When I drive around Connecticut, if a law enforcement officer pulls me over, he or she can ask to see my driver's license. But if they notice that I'm carrying a weapon, they can't ask to see my permit that allows me to do so. That's crazy. Once again, it makes it harder for law enforcement officers to do their job, and it makes all of us less safe. I think it's time that we update our concealed carry laws in Connecticut. Why are these not already law in Connecticut? What has stalled progress in the past? It's a really great question. Um, A part of it is disagreements within the Democratic caucus. There are members of the caucus that are more progressive. There are members that are less progressive. I think I, I... have trouble with labels. I find myself uh, agreeing with my mo- more moderate colleagues on some issues, but when it comes to paid family, when it comes to gun laws, I think I'm among some of the most progressive members in the Senate. I support a $15 minimum wage. So a part of it is making sure that we really have strong communication within our caucus. And then a major reason that these haven't that these bills haven't moved forward in the past is the fact that the state Senate was tied, 18 Democrats, 18 Republicans. In fact, It was the only tie in the whole country, and that provided a really remarkable opportunity in this most recent election. 
as I knocked on doors, I knocked on around 4,000 doors. I had 142 meet and greets. I could tell people in my district that they happened to have an opportunity with their one vote to determine the outcome of the state Senate and to determine the leadership in Hartford because it only took one seat to break that tie. Uh, that's what was so exciting about the most recent election. And we broke the tie in a big way. It wasn't just one seat that we flipped. They're, the makeup of the Senate is now 23 Democrats and 13 Republicans. That means we can really move forward and uh, move beyond the gridlock that's paralyzed our state for too long. And there was also a pretty close governor's race, as well as a few other state executive races. What do the results of those elections mean for our state and progressive priorities? So my opponent and almost every other Republican on the ballot wanted to talk about Dan Malloy, who is a, and he's a pretty unpopular Democrat, but what they didn't want to talk about is the fact that we have a new administration coming in, that there was a new name on the ballot, a guy named Ned Lamont, who I think is going to be a really positive influence on our state government. He brings new ideas. He comes from the business sector. It's important to me that he's from Fairfield County. He understands the importance of investing in our transportation infrastructure to speed up the train for commuters who commute from Fairfield County into Grand Central every single day. I think Ned's going to be great. And most importantly, he brings a new voice and a new perspective. People are tired of sending the same folks to Hartford year after year and expecting different results. It's time, I think, actually getting different results requires sending new people. And that's that's certainly why I decided to run, but I think it's also a big part of why Ned decided to run and ultimately why he won. And one of the reasons that Dan Malloy was so unpopular is because of this image of Democrats as, I think the, the common term is tax and spend liberals. I, I assume you don't agree with that. Why, why is that? Look, I think it's now the responsibility of Democrats. Now that we control the House of Representatives, we control the state Senate, and we have a Democratic governor coming in to show that Democrats can in fact be fiscally responsible. We are facing a massive pension crisis in Connecticut, and it's time for major structural reforms. Uh, That doesn't mean sacrificing our most deeply held progressive values. We can strongly make a case that raising the minimum wage will help economic development in Connecticut. We can show people that passing paid family leave isn't just the right thing to do for workers and for their children, but it's also good for businesses. When California passed 12 weeks of mandatory paid family leave, Uh, Around 89% of businesses reported an increase in profitability and an increase in productivity. Democrats can be business-friendly and also worker-friendly. And I think that uh, it's time that we reject this false dichotomy put forward by Republicans. The Democrats are so moral, but we don't understand how, uh, how to be fiscally responsible. In fact, I think the next era of government, at least in Connecticut, will show that Democrats can be fiscally responsible and build a government that we can be proud of at the same time. You mentioned the importance of transportation. What exactly is the relevance of that for millennials in Connecticut? Oh my gosh, it's so important. Look, I grew up in Westport, Connecticut, and I made a decision that not a lot of other people my age make, and that's to come back to Connecticut after I graduated from college. I came right home. Unfortunately, none of my friends who I grew up with in this state decided to come back here. Nobody wants to, at the moment, nobody is interested in starting their small business, their career, their family in Connecticut, in order to build an economically vibrant state, we need to be attractive to the next generation of workers. And for a long time, Connecticut relied on an outdated economic model where people would leave a dangerous New York City to move to a quiet suburb and drive to work every day in a corporate office park. But 
that's just not how our generation thinks about the economy anymore. We want to live in vibrant cities. We want to take public transportation to work if we can't walk to work. Uh, it's important that we update our economic thinking and start investing in our cities. I represent seven suburbs in Connecticut's 26th district, but I strongly believe that our suburbs are better off when our cities are thriving. We have to stop thinking of ourselves as urban legislators versus suburban legislators. In fact, it's time that we all work together to recognize that we need to move forward as a region towards economic development, and that means transit-oriented development. It means building trains that are faster than they were in 1950, not slower. It means addressing the 308 structurally deficient bridges in Connecticut that have for too long gone uh, fallen by the wayside or under the radar. Now, the most immediate thing we can do is unlock Wi-Fi on Metro North. I used to go to school in Washington, D.C., and when I would travel from Connecticut to D.C., if I took the Megabus, if I took uh, the JetBlue shuttle, or if I took Amtrak, I had Wi-Fi the whole way. And yet, on Metro North, the busiest commuter network in the entire country, there is not Wi-Fi available for riders on a daily basis. The Wi-Fi is on the trains, but it's locked for Metro North employees only. That's a huge problem. Why, don't, why can't we allow our commuters to be economically efficient while they get to and from their desks? So I'm working right away on unlocking the Wi-Fi for the people in my district. And we've increasingly seen progressives propose Wi-Fi as a, as a public utility. What are your thoughts on this framing of internet access? It's certainly something we need to look at in the upcoming session. Uh, generally, my first priority when it comes to internet access is passing net neutrality so that the internet remains a free and open forum for small businesses, for students, for all for everybody truly who relies on the internet. So look, the frontier of public policy is constantly changing as new technology emerges. That's why it's so important that every generation has a seat at the table. Many of the issues that we're facing today are frankly unique to the 21st century. And I think it's important that those problems be addressed and looked at with 21st century eyes. It's a problem in both the Democratic caucus and the Republican caucus that every day in Hartford and in state legislatures across the country, the individuals who are making decisions about our state and our communities for decades to come are people who, frankly, may not be around for decades to come. We need more young people at the decision-making table who are stakeholders in Connecticut's future. And perhaps the biggest issue of this election was healthcare. What's the state of healthcare in Connecticut? Well, unfortunately, the biggest issue that we're facing right now is that there are only two providers on the individual marketplace, which is called Access Health CT. This leads to sticky pricing, and it's raised premiums for everybody. The best thing I believe that we can do is introduce some competition into that marketplace by providing a public option. We would call it Husky E in Connecticut. It would be great for the state to offer private individuals an opportunity to buy into our health care system, but also it would provide that necessary competition to bring down rates for everybody. Uh, I'm really excited about the opportunities posed by a public option, but no conversation about health care is complete unless we're talking about women's health care and protecting reproductive rights, which are uniquely under threat right now, given the Trump administration. Connecticut's made huge strides in protecting uh, a, woman's, a woman's reproductive rights, but we need to go much further, I think, and start seriously addressing crisis pregnancy centers, which sometimes deceive uh, pregnant women into making decisions that they would not otherwise make. We need to, in my opinion, eliminate co-pays for all abortion-related services. Uh, there's a lot more that we can do, and I think that it's time for Connecticut to show the rest of the country that what works here could work everywhere. 
instead of being a city on a hill, let's be a state on the hill that the rest of the country looks to. In regards to reproductive rights, one of the biggest fears is the conservative majority on the Supreme Court dismantling Roe v. Wade. Arguably, that's been happening for a long time via lawsuits that have occurred due to state-level laws. What exactly can Connecticut do to potentially fight against the Supreme Court in this and other decisions? So repeatedly, you know, Justice Brandeis said that states are laboratories in democracy. I think that states need to do more than that. They need to be laboratories in courage, whether it's standing up to the NRA or standing up uh, to those who insist that lawmakers sitting behind closed doors can make decisions about a woman's body. It's time, I think, for legislatures to stand up to the step up to the plate and be the first line of defense against the Trump administration, against uh, Justice Roberts' increasingly conservative Supreme Court. We really do need to be a firewall in protect in protecting reproductive health and freedom, LGBTQ equality, environmental regulations, consumer rights, voter rights. All of these things are suddenly on the chopping block, and uh, it raises the stakes of all the work that we do on the state level. I'm really excited to be working closely with Planned Parenthood, NARAL, the coalition that's working to advance uh, paid family leave, as well as those that are working to enforce the uh, pay equity law that finally went on the books on January 1st, just a few days ago. So the work is not yet done in Connecticut, and uh, we've got a lot of work cut out for us given what's happening in Washington. But ultimately, given the conversations I've had with my colleagues in Hartford, I'm optimistic about that we're going in the right direction. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And one of Democrats' top priorities this session is marijuana legalization. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I will support uh, marijuana, the legalization of recreational marijuana with a few important conditions. The first is that I want to tax it heavily. Um, I don't think that, that we already tax cigarettes very heavily. Alcohol is taxed pretty heavily. And this is a huge opportunity for revenue in Connecticut. The estimates that I've seen range from $50 million a year to $80 million a year. Uh, we're not a state at the moment that can afford to leave money on the table. So I do think that we should legalize recreational marijuana. But our state finances are not a sufficient reason alone for doing so. We also have to take into account important public safety and health concern concerns. Uh, the first is I would support an age limit so that nobody under 21 
can access recreational marijuana because there are important brain development studies that show marijuana can have a negative effect on adolescent brains. I also will strongly make the argument that legalizing recreational marijuana and regulating it will save lives. In New Haven, just a few months ago, a bunch of folks were sitting in a park. They thought they were smoking marijuana when in fact what they were sold was laced with fentanyl. This resulted in a mass overdose situation. And unfortunately, this is all too common on the individual scale. People think that they're smoking a safer drug when in fact it's something much more dangerous and perhaps even lethal because they're operating in a criminal and unregulated marketplace. With legalization comes the ability to regulate and make sure that people know exactly what they're consuming. So that is crucially important as we when we talk about the legalization of recreational marijuana. The overall picture here, Jordan, is that in Connecticut, we led the way in passing a safe medical marijuana program regulated by our Department of Consumer Protection. We can do that once again in the realm of recreational marijuana, showing other states how to do it safely, how to do it responsibly. It means it might not happen overnight, but I'm confident that we can get there over the next few years. And if recreational marijuana is not legal for people under 21, what happens when people under 21 do inevitably uh, use marijuana? So I will still strongly oppose the criminalization of marijuana. And that's some progress that we've made here in Connecticut. We've decriminalized it. So going forward, uh, not too many folks end up in prison simply for smoking or possessing marijuana. Now, what we haven't done enough of is making sure that those who were previously incarcerated for these very same crimes, uh, making sure that they're not unduly and unfairly continually incarcerated. So in the, wor- in the realm of criminal justice reform, there's a lot of progress to be made. And I don't think anybody should be sitting behind bars simply because they were smoking marijuana. Study after study shows that punitive uh, incarceration does not work. Instead, we'd be better off investing in rehabilitation, making sure that individuals have an opportunity to succeed, creating productive taxpayers as opposed to folks who uh, are suffering from continual recidivism and spending too, far too much time behind bars. And could you give us a little more detail on what your criminal justice platform is? What exactly are these alternatives that you're talking about? So I spent a summer working for a public defender in Norwalk, Connecticut, and every day at 9 a.m., the phones open up in Connecticut's prisons, and our phones at that exact moment would be flooded by folks who had been approved to leave prison. The state attorneys had agreed they no longer posed a threat to society. They had made substantial progress, and yet they were still sitting there behind bars because a bed hadn't opened up in a rehabilitation facility. These were folks who were incarcerated for drug-related crimes. They were suffering from addiction. They were hoping to be reunited with their families, to enter into treatment, to basically restart and reset their lives. And yet there weren't enough treatment facilities open. When you talk to people about why that is, they'll say that treatment facilities are expensive. But do a little digging and you'll find out that it costs around $60,000 a year to keep a prisoner in jail in Connecticut. That's a lot more than many four-year colleges or universities cost. We could be getting a lot more bang for our buck by spending that money uh, on rehabilitation rather than incarceration. So my criminal justice platform primarily is to shift how we spend uh, our, our Department of Corrections dollars towards rehabilitation and away from punitive incarceration. I also think that we should be expanding the right to vote. And not only, in it's a huge problem in Connecticut, individuals who are released from prison but remain on parole 
still don't have the right to vote. I want to make sure that those individuals have a right to fully participate as citizens. But also, I want to expand the right to vote to individuals who are currently incarcerated. I think we will start treating people in prison a lot more like people once they have the right to vote. And obviously, this is a big racial justice issue. People of color are disproportionately targeted, especially Black people. What can Connecticut lawmakers do to support racial justice? It's a really important question and one that I've uh, already started, but will continue the conversation with my colleagues in the Black and Puerto Rican caucus. You know, I'm a, a white a 22-year-old white male, and I have a lot of ideas about criminal justice reform. I think we should raise the age, the minimum age in Connecticut uh, because I don't think that children who are 12 years old should be subjected to the juvenile criminal justice system. I am going to oppose a, a poorly named classroom safety bill that would disproportionately remove students of color from the classroom. But I also think it's really important for somebody in my position to do more listening than talking. That's why I've uh, started touring uh, Department of Corrections facilities in Connecticut. Next week, I'm going to the Youth Corrections Institute uh, in Cheshire, Connecticut, and that tour will continue. I plan on going to the Bridgeport uh, Corrections Institute as well as uh, in York, where many all of uh, female prisoners in Connecticut are incarcerated. I want to have conversations with individuals who are incarcerated and find out how the system failed them where Connecticut is coming up short to figure out exactly how I can best do my job in the legislature. Because I think far too often people have ideas, they go into the legislature, they spend all their time talking and not enough time listening. And that's actually not how best to serve those communities that are so desperately in need. And what other measures are you taking to make sure that you are always in touch with your community? Well, it's a really important part of this job. I can't stand when elected officials uh, show up to meetings only during campaign season, and then you never hear from them again for another two years. That's certainly not the kind of state senator that I want to be. From the very beginning, I've given uh, out my cell phone number and all of our campaign ads on my website. I want to be a legislator that people feel truly is accessible. So that's why um, people call me every single day with questions. Sometimes they call just to see if it's my real number, and I'm not giving out uh, you know, some office voicemail. But I try to pick up whenever I possibly can. I call people back as soon as I can, I respond to text messages and Instagram direct messages and Twitter direct messages. I truly want to uh, want people to feel like I'm a presence in their community and I'm ready to listen to their concerns and find out how I can lend a hand. I also want to let people know exactly what it looks like to be a state senator, what the day-to-day of this job is, what decisions I'm facing that I haven't made up my mind yet. That's why I've taken a really active role on Instagram. I try to show people I tried to show people the day in the life of orientation. Here's where we eat lunch. Here's what my office looks like. Here's what committees I've just been assigned. And here's why I'm happy or not happy about that. I also, going forward, want to invite people into my decision-making process through Instagram. People who are young and might not otherwise take part in official surveys or uh, formal town hall events. You know, there's an important decision coming up regarding uh, casinos in Connecticut. And as I drove to a casino in Springfield, Massachusetts, to take a tour and and evaluate some of the pros and cons there, I went live on Instagram and said, hey, let me know what questions you want me to ask the folks at MGM. I'm still making up my mind and I want to hear from you. I got some really great input from across my district and frankly, from across the state when I opened up that forum. And how can our listeners get in touch and where can they find you online? So number one, um, I always lead with Instagram. It's my favorite form of social media. So please check out Will Haskell, CT 
on uh, Instagram. It's the same handle on Twitter. My website, uh, well, you know, I've I don't have an official website yet because I'm not sworn in for another week, so I can't give you that one yet. But uh, feel free to shoot me a text. My cell is two zero three eight five six zero eight seven three. And our campaign website is still active, so you can always reach out there as well to read more about my policies and platform. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, and we hope to catch up with you later in the year to hear about all the progress you made. I would love that, Jordan. Thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for everything you're doing to make sure young people are involved in the political process. Yes, of course. And lastly, to our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow us on social media, and tune in to the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.